Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series, Progress and Joy, a study on Philippians. For more information about CBC or how you can get plugged in, visit our website, cbcsavannah.com. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you right now. We bow our hearts before you right now, O God. And we worship you. We worship you. You are the God who has sent your Son to redeem us. You are the God who has raised Him from the dead and has secured our victory forever, God. We worship You. And Lord God, this morning we need Your power. And this morning we need Your grace. God, this morning we need to hear from You. We need to see Christ. We need to be changed by Him. Lord, we are powerless to change ourselves. We are helpless, Lord God, to change and transform our own hearts. Only you can do this. So God, I beg you that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would apply your word to our hearts and you would change us. And Father, I just, I bow low before you right now and I confess to you that I am the most unworthy to preach this sermon. I am the least likely candidate to preach on this topic. And so, God, I just ask that you would help me, who has failed in this way a million times, and really just take me out of the way and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would see him and we would love him and we would imitate him. Do this all for the sake of your name. Amen. Okay, we are continuing today in the book of Philippians in our series called Progress and Joy. And just to refresh you guys, um, Paul is writing 62 AD from prison in Rome. He's writing to a church that he loves. Helped start the church 10 years earlier. He loves these people. Um, And they are very, very concerned about him, but he is telling them, hey, look, don't you worry about me. Um, In fact, I'm in a win-win situation, he's saying. If they kill me, I get Christ, and if not, I get to stay with you guys for your progress and joy in the faith. Um, And this week, it's crazy timing how this all works. Just outside of Rome, a very important discovery was made. One One of the bigger discoveries of evangelicalism in our time, what some people think is a photo of the Apostle Paul. And it kind of confirms everything we've been hearing about. Let's put the photo up. See here. <laughs> we all know Paul was not quite this ugly, so not Paul. Um, but Bill's selfie has reminded us about Paul's attitude in prison, his joy and his love for these people. Um, and here's where we are in the letter. To this point, Paul has just kind of been catching people up on what's been going on with him. But when he gets to chapter 1, verse 27, he starts to get to the purpose for which he's writing. And he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here's why I'm writing. I want your life to be worthy of the gospel. The way that you live. 
And, and, and kind of the big E on the eye chart for us today is this. What we're going to see as he really starts to sort of unpack this in chapter 2 is this truth that a worthy life begins with a worthy attitude. For Paul and his instructions to the Philippians, a worthy life begins with a worthy attitude. If they were going to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, they need to take on an attitude that was worthy of the gospel. So here's our goal for today. First, I want us just to simply see what that attitude is. And then I want to give us three, three reasons why we should take on the same attitude as the Philippians. So that's where we're going. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11 today. Let me just, yes, y'all. The Word of God in your laps. Two billion people on planet Earth, they don't have it. It is the grace of God to us that we have the Word of God. So I just pray that you would have excitement this morning as you come to the Word of God. This is grace to us. Uh, Here's what Paul writes. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so verse 1, Paul begins with this word, so. So if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, what's he doing? He's appealing to the Philippians' experience of the grace of God. And he's just told them, hey, you're going to suffer. Christian life is not going to be easy. But here's what he knew. If they were walking with Christ, then they would have experienced the encouragement that only Christ gives. They would have experienced the comfort from the love of God. Fellowship with the Spirit of God. Affection and sympathy from brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he's saying, if you have experienced this in the ups and downs of your life, and the suffering and the trials, if you have experienced the grace of God, here's what I want you to do. Verse 2, I want you to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Last Saturday, uh, our oldest daughter was sick, so I had to take her to the doctor on Saturday morning. Not my idea of a fun Saturday morning, not hers either. And so we go to the doctor, um, spend more time there than we'd hoped. But when I get home, my wife has college game day on the TV. I'm thinking, that makes me a happy man. 
And what Paul is saying here is, hey, Philippian church, let me tell you how to make me a happy man. I tell you what will make me happy. My joy will be complete if all of you guys will take on this corporate mindset. If every single one would take on this attitude. And then in verse 3, before he tells us what the attitude is, he actually tells us what attitude not to have. So let's start there. Here are his instructions. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. As a Christian, never for any reason do anything from a motive that would exalt yourself, that would try to make a name for yourself. And this word, selfish ambition or rivalry, it's an interesting word, okay? It's a word that the Greco-Roman world had for politicians, people who were campaigning, electioneering. And every time I read this this week, almost, I thought about one specific candidate who is currently electioneering who loves to remind us that he is number one in the polls, (laughs) number one among evangelicals. (laughs) Y'all know who I'm talking about. And I don't know how he's number one among evangelicals. Because the idea here is that nobody should ever do anything from the motive of trying to grab on to their own glory, to, to, to seek after recognition, right, or, or praise from others, to leverage their position or their power for self-advantage. Paul is saying this should never be your motive. And friends, this is a major challenge for us. Our culture is a self-obsessed culture. Listen to this. This is true. Last year, more people died from selfies, taking selfies, than they did from shark attacks. That is true. We are obsessed with taking pictures of ourselves. From the time that we're little, we are trained to make a name for ourselves, to leverage every advantage, to get and get and get. This is how we're trained by the culture, to seek after our own glory and honor and recognition. And friends, let me just confess to you, my life is filled with examples of this. And I can trace it all the way back to when I was a kid, just wanting to impress people. We've got to take heed to this warning this morning. This is an attitude that is not worthy of the gospel of Christ. But, but it's not only unworthy of the gospel of Christ, it's also a harmful type of attitude. Okay? It creates disunity. And, and, and you know what I mean. You all know this from personal experience. If you think about the disunity or the tension in your life, in your marriage, in your family, with your friends, nine times out of ten, it comes because one person at least, one of two, is holding on too tightly to their own rights or their own preferences or their own desires at the expense of somebody else's. 
And it's interesting, too, because if you look at the Philippian church, what we're going to see in chapter 4 is that there was this tension that was starting to build because these two ladies were looking to their own interests instead of the interests of others. And so what Paul wanted to do is just nip this attitude in the bud. Okay, but thankfully, Paul doesn't just tell us what not to do. He also tells us what to do. And so that's where we want to focus in now. Now he tells us about the attitude that is worthy of Christ. And here's what we see in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but... In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, here it is. This is the attitude that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, this is what would make Paul a happy man. When in humility, we count others as more significant than ourselves. Their needs, their concerns, their desires, more significant than ours. And we've talked about this before, but we got to hit it this morning. There are way too many misconceptions about humility. A lot of us just have a misunderstanding about what humility really is. A lot of us, when we think about somebody who's humble, we think about Eeyore. We're just kind of walking around thinking, oh, I'm nobody. I'm stupid. I'm dumb. I'm not very important or good at anything. And we think, oh, man, that guy's humble. And we, the biblical answer is no, that guy's self-obsessed. Okay? Listen to how C.S. Lewis explains humility. It's great. It says, don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And this is exactly, exactly Paul's point. Paul's point is that humility, which is the exact opposite of selfish ambition or conceit, humility is concerned not with ourselves, but with others. Not just with, not just with our good, but with their good. And as tensions were starting to form in Philippi, this is the attitude that Paul wanted the whole church to take on. Okay? And it's the attitude that we need to take on. And here's the first reason why. Humility brings unity. First reason why we need to take on an attitude of humility as the people of God is because humility brings unity. Okay, here's one way I know this. Think about how you feel about a person who goes out of their way to take interest in you, who asks you questions about yourself, or who meets needs that you might have, or who serves you in a way that just was timely. How do we feel about those people? We love them. We think, oh, what a sweet lady. Or that guy's the man. I just love them. And it's because humility, which is practically caring for others, practically doing good for others, practically being concerned with others, it brings unity. And so, friends, if in your life there's tension in relationships right now, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your family, with your roommates, if there is tension, here's step one that we need to take. In humility, start counting others as more significant than yourself and see what happens. Now, let me be honest. This is difficult. And not just difficult, this is very unnatural. Okay, and as a dad of three little girls, I know what unnatural feels like, okay? 
I've got little girls who come to me and they ask me to put their hair in pigtails. That's unnatural for me. I've got little girls who want me to call my toilet the big girl potty. That is very unnatural. I've got three little girls who are trying to get me to call my boxers panties, okay? (laughs) I know what unnatural is, and this is unnatural. It is difficult to count others more significant than ourselves. But as Christians, y'all, this is a skill that we've got to cultivate. And verse 4 gives us instructions on how to do it. Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You want to count others more significant than yourselves, then each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, two, two words here we need to zoom in on. First is each, and the second is look. And I want to take them in reverse order. Okay, so the skill, the discipline, is that we need to look. We need to look to the interests of others. What does this mean? This means intentionally stopping and considering somebody, what their concerns are, what they need, how we might meet that need. We've got to discipline ourselves to look and see what they need, right? And if you want an example of this, the best example I know of is moms with little kids, okay? Moms with little kids. We just had our third a month ago. My wife, in the last month, has just been killing Philippians 2-4, just putting it into action big time, constantly. What do you need? How can I help? What can I get for you? And this is how we are to be. We are to look to the interests of others, but, but here's the other word we need to zoom in on, the word each. Okay, remember Paul is trying to get the whole church to take on this attitude. He wants the whole church to take on the corporate attitude of humility. But here, here is his instructions on how to get there. If the whole church is going to take on the attitude, it begins with each individual. Each of you have to personally take on this attitude. And, and so again, friend, if you're wanting unity in your marriage or unity in your family, you can't wait for somebody else to start acting humbly. You've got to start doing it. Each one has to do it. And let, let me tell you how this works. One of my best buddies, uh, in his first year of marriage, he came into the covenant of marriage as a whole milk drinker. His wife came into the covenant of marriage as a skim milk drinker. There was some serious conflict about what would become the official milk of the Owen family. But Dave's trying to put this into practice, right? He's trying to outserve his wife, trying to outserve mama. That's what he always says. So, on the way home, stops at the grocery store and uh, goes down to the milk aisle. They needed some milk. And so this moment of tension begins. Red cap, blue cap. Red cap, blue cap. Well, he just he remembers, man, i got to count, count mama more significant than myself. So he reaches for the blue cap. Sacrificial right there. And he heads home. Okay. Well, on the way home, he's getting more and more excited about giving this gift to his wife. So he comes in the door and he says... He says, baby, I got something to share with you. And his wife says, well, baby, I got something to share with you. So she comes in from the kitchen with something behind her back. He's got the skim milk behind his back. On three, all right, baby, on three, one, two, three. He pulls out the skim milk. Well, sure enough, earlier that day, she had gone to Kroger to get milk, and she got him his whole milk. Isn't that great? I know. (laughs) But here's the idea. When each one looks to the interests of others, unity happens. 
and everybody wins. So that's, that's the first reason we need to adopt this attitude of humility. Okay, but Paul doesn't just tell us what to do, thankfully. He gives us, gives us an example to imitate in verses 5 through 8. So that's where we want to turn now, someone to imitate, an example to follow. Um, and he keeps hammering home the same point. He's not moving to a new point. Continues, and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's saying, hey, I want all of you guys to take on this attitude of humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. And oh yeah, by the way, this was Christ's attitude. I want you to imitate him. Um, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with this basketball player named Jason Williams. Anybody remember Jason Williams, basketball guys? Okay, this kind of thugged out redneck from uh, West Virginia. He got all tatted up and everything. And, and I thought he was the man. And so I wanted to be just like him. So before basically every game, like my 10th grade year, maybe even a little bit older, um, I would draw his tattoos on my body with a Sharpie. I would, I would put my hair in cornrows. True story. I know some of you are ashamed. Um, I wanted to be just like this guy. Jay, Jay Thompson knows it. He saw me, he saw me play high school basketball. Um, but Paul is telling the Philippian church, if you want to be like Christ, you don't need dragon tattoos or the Japanese character for insanity. What you need is humility. If you want to be like Christ, what you need is humility. This is the second reason, you guys, that we should adopt this attitude of humility. Humility resembles Christ. Humility resembles Christ. Um, there's a new TV show that just came out or it's about to come out. Um, I'm definitely not endorsing the show. I've only seen the commercials. Um, but it's called Limitless, and apparently it was made from a movie, and the movie was made from a book. And the idea, I understand, is that you can take a pill, and then that pill essentially makes you limitless, gives you power and wisdom that you otherwise wouldn't have, something like that. If you had limitless power and wisdom, how would you use it? If you had limitless power and wisdom, how would you use it? We're never going to have to make a decision on that. But Jesus did. Look at verse 6. Paul says in, in the first part of verse 6 that Jesus was in the form of God. What's he mean? He means that before Jesus ever came. He had all the characteristics and qualities of God. Before Jesus ever entered humanity, he was God. Listen to how the New Testament makes it clear. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Listen, listen to Colossians 1. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That is the rights of the firstborn. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were made through him and for him. Friend, think about this. Please, we we cannot get comfortable with this reality. That all glory, all honor, all ownership, it all belonged to Jesus before he ever came. All power and all wisdom. How would he use it? Look at the rest of verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Even though he was truly God, he acted with no selfish ambition or conceit. Not one time did he grasp after his own glory or honor or recognition. He never used his status or power for his own self-advantage. In humility, he counted others more significant than himself. And look at how he did it. Verse 7. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Friend, think about this. And I'm going to pray right now. It's weird to pray in the middle of service because I want this to get into our hearts so bad. I want to get it in my heart. Lord God, in Jesus' name, would you help us to understand this truth? 1 Corinthians 2 says that by the Spirit of God, we can understand the things freely given to us by God in the gospel. Please help us to understand this now. I pray in Christ's name. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, left heaven to become a man. This actually happened in human history. The Creator, the one who made the world out of nothing, the one who formed the first man, The one who made a covenant with Abraham. The one who delivered Israel out of Egypt through the plagues. The one who split the Red Sea. The one who hung every star in the sky and calls them out by name. The one who measures the breadth of heaven with his hand. The one who brings kingdoms and princes to nothing and makes them rise and fall. The Lord of all creation. The God of history became a man. This is astonishing. And friends, it would have been astonishing if he had come as a king. As the greatest king ever. The wealthiest king ever. With all the earthly glory that we could know, that would have been astonishing. He could have come like the Pope, rolling out the red carpet, news cameras everywhere, dignitaries to meet him. But not this God. Verse 7 says he came as a servant. Born to a nobody teenage girl in a nobody town in a nobody region in the Roman Empire. 
This is humility. God became a man. But notice in verse 8, he stoops even lower. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus did not just serve us in his life. He served us in his death. Okay, and again, we can get way too familiar with this. We're so comfortable with the idea of a cross. We've got cross earrings and cross necklaces and cross tattoos and crosses on our buildings. Crosses everywhere. But friend, to the believer in Philippi, to anyone in the Roman Empire at this time, the thought of a cross would evoke horror. Roman citizens wouldn't even use the term crucifixion in polite company. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. This was saved for the vilest, most wicked criminal. Rebels, anarchists, enemies of Caesar, crucify him. The lowest of the low. If you want a modern day equivalent, think the gas chambers of Nazi Germany. Okay, that's cross in Roman Empire. Only probably worse. Friends, there is not a more extreme contrast in the world than the glorious Son of God in a cross. This would have been shocking to the Philippian audience. right? While Caesar, the lord of the empire, was in his palace, on his throne, enjoying his glory and honor and recognition, people serving him, doing whatever they wanted, God the Son, the Lord of Caesar, the one to whom Caesar would one day bow, entered humanity, became a servant, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we've got to ask, why was he on the cross? Why? Was he there for himself? <laughs> no. On the night he was betrayed, he says, don't y'all know that at any point I could call down 12 legions of angels? Stop this thing right now. Save myself like that. Why was he there? Friend, he was there for you. He was there for me. He was considering us as more significant than himself. He knew that our grasping after selfish ambition and conceit and our own glory, our refusal to glorify God, he knew this deserved God's judgment. Of course it deserves God's judgment. To reject the one who made us to worship ourselves, of course that deserves God's judgment. How could it not? But counting us as more significant than himself, Jesus comes. He comes as a man. He comes as a servant. He comes to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, death on your cross. 
death on my cross. Putting himself forward as a substitute. Father, I will take their place. And on that cross, the judgment of God is poured out on Christ, so it will never be poured out on the one who believes in him. Uh, We will only ever experience the love and acceptance and grace of God. That's why he was there. Friends, this is humility. The Son of God becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for you and for me. Let me read this quote. D.A. Carson says it way better than I can. It says, The eternal Son did not think of his status as God, as something that gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, he made himself nothing and gave and gave and gave. The point of this passage is still that we need to imitate Christ. This is the example, friends, that we are to follow. This is the mind, the attitude that we are to have. And here's what that means for us. It means that we could never stoop as low as he stooped. We could never serve as much as he served. We could never sacrifice what he sacrificed. We could never give as much as he gave. And, and so uh, an application this morning to everybody, but especially to those whose kind of your lifestyle or your status brings with it some worldly importance. Right? Maybe you're a CEO or a doctor. Maybe you're the most beautiful woman in the room. Or maybe you're the most popular kid in school or the best on your team. Here's what this means. No matter who you are, if you are a Christian, we're called to be servants. We're called to, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. Our wife, our husband, our kids, co-workers, all of them. And so here's, here's a question to see how we're doing. When it comes to the people closest to you, are they more aware of your service to them or of your expectations for them? When it comes to the people closest to you, are they more aware of your service to them or of your expectations for them? All right, let me get real, too, real quick. If you're like me and you have looked at the, at the cross of Christ and you've asked yourself this question, then you probably have this, like, knot in your stomach. <laughs> like, this is so rarely my motive. Way more often my life is characterized by selfish ambition and conceit in my own glory and wanting to impress people, getting what I can have for my own enjoyment friends if that's you this morning and service serving others just feels like calling your boxers panties um, I can identify this is difficult but here's the reality the one we love the most live his life this way. The one who is most valuable lived his life this way. 
The high king of heaven came not to be served, but to serve. And as his followers, it should be our joy to imitate him. It should be our joy to imitate him. So we should adopt this attitude because it resembles Christ. That's the second reason. One more reason in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In response to Christ's humility, specifically in response to to Christ's sacrifice, God has highly exalted Christ. This is a word that Paul made up. He just took the word exalted and he put the, the term hyper in front of it. He says, because of what Christ has done, God has hyper-exalted him. And this doesn't mean he is any more God than he was before he came. It doesn't mean he's any more elevated in position than he was before he came. But it does mean this. It, it, will be, it does mean that he is more worshipped. More worship in the sense that before he came, he was not the lamb that was slain for sinners. He had not done that yet. He had not added that to his works yet. But now he is highly exalted as his people look on him and say, this is the God who came to save me. He is highly exalted. We will worship the lamb who was slain forever, praise God. But not only that, God has placed on him the name that is above every other name. This is interesting stuff. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, Yahweh says, at my name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I'm the Lord. So what's going on here? Because right here, this is being attributed to Jesus. And here's the idea. There's a day that's coming when every human being who's ever lived, and every other created being for that matter, will look on this one who left heaven to die on a cross, this one who has been mocked and scorned generation after generation after generation. They will look on this one whose name has become a cuss word. They will look on this one whose followers they have killed, and one day they will stand before him in awe. He's God. The one we hated and rejected is God. And friend, let me talk to you this morning if you're here and you don't know Christ or you're not a follower of Christ or you don't believe this, okay? Let me just appeal to you for a minute. One, I'm so glad you're here. Thank God brought you here supernaturally. You might not believe that yet. Here's what the Bible is making really, really, really clear. The Bible is making really clear that anyone who willingly and joyfully bows their knee to Jesus now will only experience the grace and the goodness of God for eternity. There is no penalty left for us to pay. God is a just God, and the the payment's done. It's finished. But for the one who has rejected Christ, for the one who said, nah, it's not for me, or "I, I I don't believe that, The Bible says that there is a day coming when you will stand before this one that you've rejected only to realize he is exactly who he says he is. 
And the Bible teaches very clearly that for that rejection, you'll be held accountable by God for eternity. And so here's what I just want to hold out to you today. See the love of God that left heaven for you. And get in on this, because this is what you were made for. There is joy here that you want to get in on, I promise you. And so if you want to know how you can know Christ, there's going to be some of us down here afterwards. We would love, we'd love to talk to you. Um, okay, but point of the passage. We don't want to get too far away from it. The point of the passage is that this exaltation of Jesus, the fact that one day uh, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth to Jesus, one day every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord, what this is, is this is God's vindication of what Christ has done. What this is, is God the Father celebrating the humility of Christ. When our little girls uh, go out of their way to share, or when they um, include each other without being asked, sometimes we'll just stop and we'll clap and say, baby, that's beautiful, great job. And what this exaltation of Jesus is, this is God's passionate and joyful approval of the humility and sacrifice of Christ. This is his great job to his son. And this is our, our last point. The third reason why we should adopt the attitude of humility is because humility pleases God. Humility pleases God. As I look around this room, I see a bunch of people that I love, a bunch of people that I admire, a bunch of people who are great servants. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth it to live this life, not seeking after my own glory and honor, but seeking after Christ and giving and giving and giving? Is it worth it to be up late and with sick kids and keep changing diapers and keep giving rides and keep doing laundry? Is it worth it to keep caring for your spouse who is struggling and it's hard? Is, is all the service behind the scenes Worth it? Is it all the times you've been inconvenienced by that person that you're trying to love? Is it worth it? <laughs> and the point here is that God's vindication of Christ proves that it is so worth it. It proves that there is not one act of humble sacrifice that goes unnoticed by our Creator. Not one. It proves Christ's own words in Luke chapter 18. That one day the one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, stay the course. It is worth it. Worthy life starts with a worthy attitude. Humility. Counting others more significant than ourselves. And we could, should take on this attitude because it brings unity, it resembles Christ, and it pleases God. It's fitting for us today to move uh, into worship by, by taking the Lord's table, by thinking about his sacrifice for us, by thinking about his humility and suffering for us. Um, and before you turn me out and put your Bibles up, just hang in there for just one sec. Probably lots of us this morning are very aware of our failures. We're aware of our failures of the past week. We're aware of the motives in our hearts that are just impure. 
We're aware of our desire for our own glory. We're aware of our failure to serve those around us. Um, And here's what I want you to do as you move to the table. I want you to get your eyes off yourself. Stop looking at yourself. And look to God. As we've looked at verses 5 through 8, can you see how he loves you this morning? Can you see that he became a man for you? That he became a servant for you? That he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you? Before you come to the table, just take a minute to thank the God who did not use his status and power to get and get and get. But he used it to give and to give and to give. So we might only experience his love. Okay, after I pray, we'll come. Just come to the table in front of your section. Um, Any who are believers in Christ, you're welcome to come. And then whenever you're ready, uh, don't wait on everybody else. Whenever you're ready, feel free to take the Lord's table. Um, Let's pray. Lord God, we, we are amazed at you. We are amazed at you, Lord. And, and we know we just don't understand fully all that you've done. Um, but I pray that you would give us a better understanding of your grace. A deeper understanding of your sacrifice. I pray that we would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. That as we see you on the cross, Lord Jesus, we would see you there for us. For the joy set before you. For us coming to you one day as your own brothers and sisters. And Lord, as we see your sacrifice, as we see your love, I pray that we would be so motivated to go out and to take on the same mindset to count others more significant than ourselves. We can't do this on our own. Would you help us, Lord God? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.